Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. This episode is about a short story called Sultana's Dream, um, which is a story about a woman who falls asleep and wakes up and is guided through um, a utopia that she wakes up in. Um, more so than any other anything else I've covered on this podcast, probably this is one that'd be really easy to catch up on if you wanted to familiarise yourself with the material before listening. Um, I've got a hard copy of it, and I think it's literally twenty pages or something like that. So um, yeah, it's really really short, and I don't know. If you, perhaps you can find it online uh, somewhere, and um, yeah, it won't take you long to read at all. If you want to do so, um, but yeah, if not, we obviously give a um, myself and my guest. We'll sort of talk you through it a bit as we have our conversation. But uh, joining me to talk about the the story is Ibtisam Ahmed. He's a PhD candidate at the University of Nottingham, and he's got a lot of uh, interesting things to say about um, this story and what we can take from it and its kind of position, or I suppose you could say the position it should have in. Uh, a kind of field of utopianism which which can tend to be a bit eurocentric or western focused at least so it's um yeah certainly a valuable perspective and um it was a it's a writer i hadn't heard of before it's a story i haven't heard of before um, but yeah i think it's a, a lot to take out of it so i'll leave you with that conversation now and um, i'll be back at the end to to wrap up Joining me now is Ibtisam Ahmed. He is a PhD student at the University of Nottingham. And thank you very much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. So we are going to be talking about a short story called Sultana's Dream, which is written by uh, Rokea Sakawat Hussein. Have I pronounced that wrong? Uh, no, you haven't. <laughs> oh, okay. That's the one. Uh, also known as Begum Rokea. Uh, why does she have two names, by the way? Uh, so Begum is a, a Bengali word that roughly translates to lady, uh, and it's a sign of respect. And uh, it's not a formal title. It's not something that's bestowed by the state or any institution. Uh, it's just she played such an such an important role for feminist thought and uh, women's rights in Bengal, uh, it was undivided Bengal at the time, that she's known as Begum Rukia, both in Bangladesh and in uh, the Bengali parts of India. Uh, okay, okay, cool. Thanks for that. Right, so um, I'm just going to give a very rough synopsis of the, the, the story, um, just so people who haven't read it uh, know where we are. Um, as I say, it's, it is very short, so I'd recommend people you know, go away and have a quick read of it and before listen to this if, if you can but anyway it's about a woman who uh, is kind of falls asleep in her chair and effectively it's she's experienced a dream or wakes up in a utopian world we could say um where um, power relations have been in, inverted and um women are kind of in a position of power and men are uh, kind of a underclass we could say and we'll maybe explain some of the details of that later 
and she essentially gets a, a short tour through this world and you know sees how things work and, and gets an idea of that and then wakes up um back back into her normal reality so that's a just a rough idea for for people who who don't know before we get into talking about the story specifically i mean you gave us a little bit of detail there but could you could you tell us a bit more about um Rokea and kind of her background and and significance sure um uh, so begum Rokea a was a feminist I would say activist, even though the terminology wouldn't probably have applied in the early 1900s. Uh, she sure. was a social reformer, uh, and her main focus was actually on women's education and access to women's education and girls' education. Uh, it's important to remember at the time that education was deeply segregated between the sexes, girls. Um, often didn't get the same access to education, particularly if they weren't from wealthy families. And even if they were from wealthy families, the education was geared more towards um, domestic education, household uh, upkeep and things like that. And her, her main focus was the idea that the biggest way to improve society at large was to uh, make access to education equal. Uh, and that mm -hmm. applied not just across genders, but also applied across class. It applied across uh, religion. Um, uh, and uh, it, at the time, it's quite relevant to this, applied across, uh, what's the right way to phrase this? It applied across uh, feelings towards uh, British colonialism, because a lot of times access to equal opportunities was... Uh, prevented if you were particularly anti-colonial um, mm. and uh, Bega Murky herself was quite uh, strongly anti-colonial herself. She was quite well off. Uh, she um, did have access to education herself at the time. Uh, she was married into a very comfortable life uh, but that's something that she acknowledged. She was very um, open about the fact that a lot of the reasons she was able to spend time writing and campaigning is because she didn't have to worry uh, about surviving on a day-to-day -day basis that a lot of uh, poverty-stricken women did have to. Uh, so she did um, acknowledge a lot of that in her writing and in her campaigning and her activism. Uh, and, and again, she used that as the kind of standard. If, if I am able to do so, I don't understand why other women can't uh, and that's what I want to strive for mm, okay and you think that she um so I read I read something you've, you've written uh, about her and her work and you think she's kind of a figure that should perhaps be uh, more important uh, or is it like a, a way of so you, you talked about utopia and the kind of field of utopian study being mm -hmm. quite um eurocentric yeah and I mean, that's a criticism we could probably level at this podcast, to be fair, as well. I mean, a lot of the episodes I've done have been stuff that you would think of as traditionally, you know, Western yeah. stuff, other stuff out of Europe or America. Um, so you, you think, it, you know, it's something that we need to do to kind of uh, move away from that focus in the area of utopia? I think it's absolutely vital that we do so. Uh, I think it's very telling that Sultana's Dream is rarely cited as an example of early feminist utopian fiction, uh, while her land, which obviously has a very different story, but you thinks about that same uh, subversion of gender roles, is 
quite rightfully uh, lauded, but it's often cited as the very first one, whereas uh, Sultana's Dream predates it by a good decade. Uh, well, nearly a decade. Sultana's Dream was 1905, and if I remember correctly, Herland was 1909. Um, and it was originally written in English as well, so there isn't the um, danger of missing something out in translation. Brokeh Akwasis and Begum specifically wrote it in English. Um, so I, I think that's something that's uh, vital from the literary perspective of needing to look at sources beyond a Eurocentric, uh, beyond the Eurocentric canon. Uh, but I also think more widely, when you consider what utopian studies and what utopianism is really about, uh, it's about harnessing human hopes it's about social dreaming it's about finding alternatives to uh inequality and um the unfair present and i think that there needs to be an acknowledgement of how uh colonialism in particular created some of those unfair systems some of those entrenched inequalities uh so looking at utopian fiction that isn't based in the quote-unquote Western world is extremely important, but uh, especially important is to look at anti-colonial utopian fiction, which I think Sultan history definitely um, is a part of that canon. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, makes sense. Um, so with this, um, with what she's doing with this story, as we said, she's rather than presenting a utopian society of equality as, as an alternative to the, the one that she lived in, where mm-hmm. uh, women were subordinate, she chooses to invert it. Um, now, I, I presume... I presume what she would actually want was, is a society of equality rather than one where uh, one gender is, a fit, is inferior. So... Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask why why do you think she she's taken this approach and to present it uh yeah in its opposite way is it just kind of like a rhetorical device or there's definitely an element of the rhetorical device I think uh she highlights almost the absurdity of certain aspects of uh the patriarchy and it's important to note that uh, it isn't just colonial patriarchy that she takes a swing at although that's definitely in the text uh, and I'm sure we'll probably be unpacking that a little further down the line. Uh, but she also is very big critique uh, is a very big critic and provides a very strong critique of uh, Islamic patriarchy. Um, and 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 it is specifically that um, it's specifically in Islamic patriarchy that she takes um, that she takes issue with because of the terminology she uses of the Mardana and the Zanana. Um, can you uh, explain what that is for people who might not be familiar? Uh, sure. So the Mardana um, is the version that she creates in this kind of reversed utopia of uh, men being sequestered. Uh, the Zanana, which is the historical concept, was the idea of women uh, being veiled and having their own space uh, away from men. And it was, again, a sequestered space in uh in in the household uh in some public spaces and within the context of south asia the the idea of veiling which was more broadly known as uh purda purda meaning veil or curtain 
was practiced across several religions. So it, it wasn't just an Islamic concept. Uh, but the Zanana specifically was uh, an Islamic construct. Uh, and it was, again, a, 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 a woman's space. Uh, there was a level of autonomy. It would be extremely unfair of me to suggest that the Zanana was simply uh, the equivalent of a very Orientalist notion of a harem. Mm. Uh, but so there, there was a lot of autonomy for women within the space. Uh, okay. Oftentimes they were in charge of the financial aspect of the household because they were slightly more aware of what needed to be bought for a daily mm. upkeep. Uh, but it would also be unfair of me to suggest that it was an equal space. Uh, women were very much sequestered in there. They were often not allowed in the main part of the household if a male guest was visiting, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, Mardana, which uh, Rakesh Akhwati Singh creates in, in Sultana's Dream, is the exact inverse of that, where men are completely sequestered. They're kept away from prying eyes almost. Um, and, and so going back to what you'd asked earlier, I, I do think that the, I, I do think the, the the biggest reason she created this in the short story was to highlight the absurdity of a segregated space or a space segregated by gender. But I also think it's important to, to note that there's an underlying current of justice throughout the short story. Uh, mm-hmm. And justice doesn't just come from pretending everything's fine. Justice comes from actively seeking reparations and actively seeking to redress imbalances. And I think uh, that Mardana is an interesting example of not just saying, well, we're equal now, everything's fine. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that Mardana is a really interesting way of saying well things hadn't been equal and that was a specific injustice that had been created for women Uh, so to fix that uh, we need to first I won't say inflict it I think that's a bit cruel but we first need to redress that by actually creating a segregated space for us for men Mm. yeah okay that makes sense um yeah I was quite I was quite struck by how uh modern a lot of the arguments that were kind of deploying seemed mm-hmm. i mean i'm sure you'll be aware there will be often uh some of the discourse around um you know rape for example where people will blame women yeah. for the way they dress or whatever the, the, the kind of unspoken implication being that men are kind of um unable to like they're basically animals that are unable to control themselves yes um, and that's the kind of argument that comes up here where um the uh, the protagonist is being led through is kind of uh, she kind of tries to defend her the way society is now and again and she's like well you know women are weak so you know why, why should we be out on the streets you know because we're vulnerable and the, the the other character doesn't respond by saying no women aren't weak she says yes women are weak so it's not safe for there to be men around um nor is it so when a wild animal enters a marketplace so yes. it's kind of a an interesting yeah very um uh, modern modern argument that we see now being deployed i think yes but in a, an extremely subversive way uh yeah. so the, the argument not being that women are weak therefore they should stay indoors it's women are weak therefore men who are potentially wild should be kept indoors. So I think that's an interesting subversion of that. Uh, And she does use 
um, a similar rhetoric in her other work. Uh, so a, a novella called Padmarag, which is available in translation now, uh, that was originally written in Bengali. Uh, that particular one focuses on um, a woman's boarding school in uh, Kolkata. And it talks, it looks at how there are specific specific expectations for women who live in a boarding school and who teach in a boarding school. Uh, so it's, it's this all-women school, all-girls school, and uh, a lot of the teachers themselves are outcast women. They are uh, women who have been widowed. Some of them have been left at the altar. Um, some of them have had to flee uh, domestic violence. And the conceptions that the rest of society has about this boarding school is very much this notion of pity. Uh, it's very much this notion of, oh, well, oh, these poor women have nowhere else to go, so they should be useful to society by teaching younger girls. Um, and the principal of the school actually talks about that and specifically mentions, you know, we as a small group of women won't be able to change their minds. So instead of trying to do that, let's take advantage of it. Let's take advantage of the fact that they think we're helpless and they think we need protection by actually creating this completely safe space where we probably won't have prying eyes because they feel too sorry for us anyway. Uh, so mm -hmm. let's create this safe space. Let's create this private sphere of empowerment where we can support each other uh, and uh, provide validation for each other. Uh, and let's also shape the next generation, but let's do so privately instead of trying to stand out and be different, because the minute we try and do that, they'll try and shut us down. And I think it's an interesting uh, novella because it looks at the pragmatics of what actually sometimes needs to be done. I think with activism and um, with political change, those of us who have privilege often forget that the people who are being directly affected by these circumstances need to be more pragmatic about how they get things done. Mm. And Padmarag is a really good example of that. And uh, Rokesh Akhwatisen herself was quite privileged. So I think it's interesting that she still managed to write from the perspective of uh, women who didn't have the same type of social um, safety nets that she did. Mm. Yeah, that definitely comes up in, in this story as well, that kind of practicality um, towards the situation. Uh, the way We'll get to that later perhaps, but the, the kind of explanation for how this society came about is kind of rooted in kind of a practical approach. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think maybe perhaps we'll return to that later. Hello, it's me again. Just jumping in quickly to say that if you enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to help me to keep doing this, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Utopian Horizons. The support that people give me on there is really appreciated and helps me to keep doing this. And if you do choose to support me on there, you will get access to Patreon exclusive bonus episodes that are put out regularly as well. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening to this on would also be very much appreciated or just please consider recommending the podcast to a friend that you think might enjoy it. Thank you, and now back to the conversation. Perhaps you, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the... Because the, the, this is a society, we get some details of it, but a lot of the kind of um, elements of it, the structures of it are hinted at rather than outright explained. But we do have 
little hints towards uh, the way that work works, the way that capitalism works or does not work, is present or is not present, um, ecology and so on and so forth. So I wondered if you could, I uh, wondered what sort of elements of that stood out to you. I think that's something that ties in more broadly with Bengali literature at the time. Uh, it's important to note that the year that Sultana's Dream came out was also the year of the Bengal partition. Uh, so that was the year in which the colonial administration decided to split Bengal, which was one region, along Hindu and Muslim lines. Uh, and part of that was to cripple the anti-colonial movement that was centred in Bengal at the time. Um, so although there was an administrative reasoning behind it, the immediate impetus was a was a very strategic political reasoning. Uh, and if you look at anti-colonial politics and anti-colonial literature in Bengal, a, a lot of it has similar ideas, certainly not in the same futuristic science fiction vein that Sultana's Dream goes down. Mm. But this idea of returning to nature, this idea of um, having sustainable living, uh, and some of it comes from a tradition of Bengali romanticism in literature, but a lot of it does actually come from a critique of colonialism in the notion of colonialism being exploitative uh, from a resource perspective, uh, particularly this idea that uh, in, in India and South Asia, a lot of British colonialism and a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the scientific advancements of colonialism, such as the railway, uh, were initially created to exploit and transport resources, uh, not from any sense of equality or um, social good. Uh, and a lot of literature at the time did look at this idea of bringing uh, living back into, uh, bringing ways of living to a more sustainable community-based um, structure. And it might not have directly been a critique of capitalism outright, but it was certainly okay. a critique of this uh, kind of big system that comes in and exploits, which which is capitalism, let's face it. But uh, it, it was more about creating a grassroots movement. It was more about bringing it back to uh, a much smaller, sustainable way of living. And I think Sultana's Dream taps into that same tradition, but then takes it a step forward by uh, including science fiction uh, elements to it. So the idea of uh, solar energy, the idea of agriculture that is um, supported through scientific research to make crops more viable. Um, mm -hmm. th those aspects are quite revolutionary and radical. But the idea of an ecological society that is much more grassroots is actually quite prevalent in Bengali literature at the time anyway. Mm. That's um, what you've just explained that makes sense of, because um, the this uh, it's set in um, Calcutta and they talk about Calcutta basically being a garden. So it's kind of, yes. um, and that what you've just said about kind of infrastructure as a, um, basically as a way of extracting resources, the idea of that being kind of grown over and, you know, that makes sense. Um, as a kind of response to uh, the way that that infrastructure is being used for the colonial project, if you see what I mean. Yes, and I think it's a very important uh, rebuttal to 
any type of colonial justification that stems from the lines of, well, technology was still provided mm. in, in a very condescending paternalistic sense. Mm. And we do have, uh, even today, modern historians and modern politicians defending the legacy of colonialism using that kind of language. Uh, we've seen that in the works of Niall Ferguson when it comes to academia. We've certainly seen that in um, a lot of mainstream politicians as well. And I think it's important to acknowledge where a lot of that infrastructure actually came from and why that infrastructure was created in the first place. It was not to help the people. It was from an extremely uh, calculating resource perspective. Uh, and Sultana Stream, I think, in its very, very short span, manages to provide um, a critique of that as well. Mm. Yeah, the the only kind of the bits in it where I, I thought there was some kind of comment on capitalism, although a vague one, was when the, the protagonist asked um, if they were putting all the men in the Zananas, uh, would, said, would all their business, political and commercial, go in there too? And the other character doesn't answer them, but just smiles. <laughs> it was just kind yes. of, I never quite saw what the suggestion was, but it seemed to, it, it did give an answer, but it kind of seemed to suggest, well, that might not be such a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, it is left a little ambiguous, uh, and as you said yourself, a lot of the details um, aren't really all that fleshed out. And part of that's simply to do with the form of the the fiction. It's a short story rather than mm. a novella or a novel. Uh, but I do think that those aspects of very subtle criticism are are just as important uh, because it opens the door to consider things like well. As you said, is is uh, is getting rid of that capitalist structure all really all that bad? Mm. Uh, as you've um, so we've we've talked about kind of uh, perhaps representing a more ecological way of living or kind mm -hmm. of kicking back against kind of colonial infrastructure and so on and so forth. But as you've already suggested, it's not arguing for like a return to some kind of primitivist lifestyle you know like we get rid of all the technology and so on and so forth it is a technological utopia it yes. is one where they have medical uh, abilities to they said it says there's no epidemic diseases um fields are tilled by electricity you mentioned the, the solar power uh so yeah that is an important part of it as well Absolutely. And I think that's an interesting um, point within the wider consideration of where Sultana Stream lies in the utopian canon, uh, because there is a there is a tradition in, in utopian literature of, of promoting this this golden age um, with, you know, uh, obviously, with the myth of Atlantis, we've got Plato's Republic, uh, but even books like Looking, uh, Looking Backwards. Uh, and I think it's interesting because uh, a lot of anti-colonial politics and certainly a lot of uh, anti-colonial literature uh, was backwards looking it was very much this idea of we had a golden age uh, mm. before uh, colonialism happened let's get back to that uh, and a really good academic who dissects this is uh, Ashish Nandi who talks about this construct of what a third world utopia might be from a golden age perspective, but then highlights how 
inevitably the people who dream of this golden age um, were the ones who were actually least affected by colonialism in the first place. It was the landed gentry, it was the aristocracy, uh, it was the English educated growing middle class. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that while uh, Rokesh Akhwar Hussain did have financial privilege, she was a woman. Mm. And therefore, she she did still suffer from marginalization uh, from both colonial and uh, Islamic patriarchy. So I think it's vital that she breaks that myth of the golden age. There was no golden age before colonialism. We need to create a new one. Uh, so it needs to look forward. We can't just assume that everything was fine beforehand. And I think that's where the feminist angle of this utopia uh, really shines through. Mm. Uh, it's worth noting as well the to the, the you know the, the solar power technology that they use and this big bloom they have in the sky that collects water basically means there's no like storms or anything like that and then you have all the water they need collected for agriculture and so on but both these things are developed by women and yes. they're both so you you've already mentioned about how the focus you put on education and both of these things come out of universities as well yes and um she does highlight within the text um Part of the reason why women were successful uh, in repelling the colonial invaders and in setting up this um, setting up this almost meritocracy, but female-only meritocracy of Ladyland, uh, is specifically because they weren't focusing on the military, and there, there was this explanation that the men were much more military-minded; they were much more militant in their even in their defense, uh, it, it wasn't a diplomatic defense, it was an armed defense. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting critique of South Asian history at the time, because part of the reason why the, the British authorities were able to set up uh, was because of military might. Um, the East India Company, which predated the uh, control, the direct control by the crown, uh, had its own army. Uh, uh, South Asia was conquered; it it wasn't just bought, um, and uh, crown control was created as a direct response to a failed uh, attempt at rebellion uh, by Indian soldiers. So there is a history of military defeats that allowed the British colonial system and the British administration to set up. Uh, so I think she does also, in, in some ways, look at that and go, well, clearly this hasn't worked. We've tried this multiple times in our actual history. Mm. So we need to think about different ways of actually challenging uh, the establishment. And it can't be on the establishment's own terms. It needs to be on our terms. Okay, well, let's, let's um, talk about that a little bit more then because we, we kind of hit about this earlier about her kind of practical approach that she takes. And um, that is, uh, so the, the, the how this came about that women were able to invert the, the social structure in the society is that there was a young queen who ordered that all women should be educated 
and she bans early marriage before the age of 21. This is 30 years previous, so the idea is that kind of sets some kind of basis. And then the, the this is where, I guess, where the technology comes from as well that we've already mm -hmm. mentioned. I guess the implication there, which isn't necessarily directly stated, is that there's networks of power being built there as well. And then, yeah, they, they, as you said, there's a military, the military went off to uh, go to war. They had, uh, they were defeated. Nearly all the men had gone to fight. And the idea is that at this moment, they, they had, the women had been kind of biding their time. They'd already recognized the injustice as a society. They already wanted to end, overturn it, but they waited for the right opportunity to do it. And this is the moment that they decide to do it. So you feel it significant that she kind of, um, you said that that ties into real history. So this is some kind of sense of kind of practical or believable road to how something like this could come about. Absolutely. And I think that idea of believable is very important. I'm, I'm going to draw a comparison to Herland again, uh, but a lot of people talk about Herland as uh, too much of a fantastical utopia because of the fact that men don't exist in the society that is created by Charlotte uh, Perkins Gilman, um, Charlotte Perkins, uh, because it's a fantastical birth, women only exclusively, whereas in Sultana's Dream, in Ladyland, men are still there. It's The gender roles are completely subverted. Um, and I think it's a very interesting example of utopia being dreamed from on the one hand yes very revolutionary very radical very forward-thinking and quite heavy in in the science fiction elements of it mm. uh, but on the other hand very grounded in its gender politics in some ways it, it isn't suggesting um some sort of miraculous change in the way childbirth occurs and therefore we can get rid of all men uh, it is very much focused on, well, th this is a step-by-step -step way in which a feminist revolution can potentially take place. Um, and I think that's vital. Um, I think it's crucial that utopian dreaming has that touch of reality. And I think she recognised that. Yeah, so yeah, this very clear idea that there needs to be some kind of groundwork done before you can get to like the final utopia moment you're going to have to do things on the way to kind of build the resources or the power or the knowledge or whatever it is that you might need yes and it's a, i think it's a question of access as well it's uh it's creating your own utopia rather than a, a miracle of nature or or a fluke of the divine um and i think that's important as well i think it shows that you need to create your own utopia um, from that perspective, I think it's quite radical uh, yeah. from a, a feminist perspective. It's it's empowering women, not just from the idea of subverting the um, subverting the gender norms once the society was actually created. I think it's really crucial that women are the ones who actually create the society in the first place, uh, because it's showing that they can do so and probably that they should do so. Mm. And um, yeah, I wonder if as well, um, something that's just come to mind, but there could be a tendency to think, you know, we will, to have as a, as a utopian starting point, here's this new piece of technology that's going to 
bring us utopia you know here's this moment or whatever um this does have obviously significant technology as part of it but the it's a question of power really i think in this story it's not you know they create they create um so these things are significant the solar power and so on and so forth but mm-hmm. the most significant thing is understanding the power relations and the fact that those power relations are there and uh, you know understanding that that's need to be inverted not just we come up with this piece of tech and then that makes everything great if you see what i mean absolutely and i think uh the quote that really highlights that is towards the very end where the the queen uh who's speaking to uh sultana uh specifically says we do not covet other people's land we do not fight for a piece of diamond though it may be a thousandfold brighter than the koinur nor do we grudge a ruler his peacock throne of course the koinur and peacock throne are direct references to uh british colonial looting of india but i think the wider context of that just you know, talking about uh, how how uh, ladyland functions politically it's not just as you said it's not just we have this technology therefore we've created our utopia and it's going to be static and it's going going to stay as is um it talks about how it they don't want to trade with other nations that uh are particularly expansionist they don't want to trade with other nations where women are still stuck in uh as anana uh so definitely that recognition of power structures and what that actually means moving forward i think is important as well and and to me that suggests that it isn't going to remain a static utopia i don't know about whether there's scope to consider whether they increase their own territory or anything of that sort they they've clearly said they're not interested but the idea that they're creating this safe haven for women and that they are using uh their power when it comes to diplomacy with other nations i can imagine that that would also be a very subtle revolutionary cry for women in other countries mm, sure so this is i guess also a response to colonialism right because this is so also the the queen refuses to return political refugees so yes. this is kind of an alternative way of uh i don't know how much an alternative foreign policy i guess you say to colonialism like an alternative way of interacting with other states yes and i think that's also that's an unspoken part i think of a lot of her work uh particularly in sultana stream but more broadly and this is where i think kind of coming full circle in the conversation um yes i definitely believe rokesh akrosesen needs to be recognized a lot more and appreciated a lot more in utopian studies more broadly and in in the west in in the broader discussions around global feminism but i also think that begum rokesh needs to be respected a lot more in bangladesh in particular but more broadly in south asia uh, because people speak uh in extremely reverent terms about her contributions to women's education and i myself started off by saying that's that is how she's recognized and that is how she's identified uh even today uh there are universities named in her honor the, the oldest uh women's university in bengal is named after her it was set up by her but um i think the considerations of her wider politics often gets lost 
the considerations of her anti-colonialism are often lost. Her critiques of capitalism are certainly uh, never discussed in Bangladesh or India, both of which are neoliberal capitalist countries. Uh, and the question of refugees, which you've just brought up in Sultana Street, I mean, that's vital to modern South Asian geopolitics. Um, ongoing questions of the Rohingya crisis in Bangladesh, but also historically the relations between Bangladesh and India with regards to Hindu refugees uh, in India shortly after the 1971 independence war in Bangladesh, but even moving further back, the situation created by uh, India's partition in 1947 and the movement of uh, refugees to both sides of the border. Uh, and she talks about that. So obviously, she doesn't talk about what would happen in 47 and 71, but she, she highlights uh, the humanitarian need to respect refugees, to treat refugees with compassion. And you don't have that. And you, have, you barely touch on that in South Asian politics today. Uh, we've seen with the recent Indian elections that um, anti-refugee sentiment mm. gets you votes. And I think we need to rediscover Begum Rukia in South Asia as more than just uh, a reformer of women's education, We and myself included. Uh, we need to revisit her broader legacy. Yeah, I think that's um, that's quite important in terms of, I think that's something that's missing in a lot of um, utopian literature and so on as well, because quite often they, they are either like global utopias, so that there is no outside that you have to deal with, or there's some kind of, you know, like Thomas More's utopia or whatever, it's an island that's completely, you know, um, isolated and completely defended so that the outside doesn't have to be dealt with. It's always a difficult thing for utopias to have to do to try and engage with the idea of what is outside of utopia. So I think that's quite valuable that she tries to do that. I think one of the more interesting examples of that utopian tilt of dealing with refugees in the outside world is is a much more modern one, but is actually, I think, with the film Black Panther, which deals with the politics of, well, what do we do with um, Africans who don't live in Wakanda? Mm. Uh, and uh, although Ladyland doesn't specifically look at it from an ethnic perspective, uh, I think that that hint of uh, female solidarity, that hint of, well, again, we won't trade with countries where women are in, in, in Izanana and we shan't return um, political refugees. I think there's that underlying context of solidarity from a marginalised perspective that you probably don't see in utopias that may be written from a more privileged perspective. And I think that's also why it's important to read utopias from, uh, as Ashish Nandi would call it, utopias from the third world, uh, because they have a very different perspective. Mm Yeah, that's um, also yeah interesting what you said about kind of parts of her legacy being um, forgotten, like deliberately, perhaps I would suggest. That's something that ha- happens a lot with, I know you think like um, Martin Luther King, for example, like people will, people are very happy to celebrate him and talk about him when it comes to messages of, you know, peace and so on and so forth. But they, his 
I I didn't even know until relatively recently. I would say that that he had strong, you know, uh, anti-capitalist critiques. He had a lot to say about class and so on and so forth. And yeah, people people like to leave that pit out because um, yeah, that obviously presents a problem for power. So it doesn't surprise me that her kind of critiques of um, other elements have been forgotten. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you, one other thing I wanted to ask you about was the way that the story kind of wants or asks us to read it or use it. Cause I think this is a, I think perhaps it kind of has a clear idea of what it's doing and what it's for. So I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Well, I think taking, taking a step back from what, how the story is to be read, I think what's particularly interesting and thought provoking is, is the actual narrative of it being a dream. Mm-hmm. And sure. It's you know it, it's it's left ambiguous as to whether it is very much all in Sultana's head, Sultana being the protagonist and this being her dream, completely all in her head, or whether she actually was somehow transported into this uh, futuristic utopia, similar to what happens in Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time, and I think that how you read that is also quite interesting in it is is it this notion of well actually she's the one who's dreamt up this radical utopia she's the one who actually wants to change things uh it's sort of manifested as an external uh creation in her dream but it's still very much her own idea i think there's a lot of merit in reading it that way because i think that again highlights the untapped potential of marginalized voices who might not have access to certain political activities due to a lack of access to education, a lack of um, access due to class, um, mm-hmm. certainly due to gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's certainly how I read it. But I do think it's interesting to consider a, a more literal, a, a more literal reading of her actually being transported into this futuristic society. Uh, and whether she will now, having having viewed how other women can do it, whether she's now going to come and try and uh, create her own utopia. I think that very ambiguous ending lends itself to that kind of reading, uh, which, uh, and, and I'm curious here what, what others think of that as well. I know Bernita Bagchi, uh, who is a leading scholar, uh, on uh, South Asian feminist utopias. She's the one who translated Padmarag for Penguin Classics. Um, she's written extensively about Sultana's dream and she's left it quite open-ended as well. Of course, highlighting the importance of, of um, marginalized empowerment, but she's left that quite open-ended. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to see what other scholars who may have actually looked at uh, Sultana's dream would have um, would have thought of that mm. yeah the, the 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 line that um interested me on that was uh when the character says um something about how my friends will be surprised when I go back and tell them and she says yes tell them about all that you see here which kind of me to me was was kind of a statement about how utopian fiction is supposed to be used like a, a kind of a clear statement that this is meant to be applied 
to the world that you're that you live in this is meant to be a provocation that you use to think about the kind of uh society that you live in to think about its power structures this is this is something you should be um doing in your lived reality absolutely and um i think that's as a scholar who works in utopian studies but in the school of politics and international relations i do often get that as a, a very common response to when i tell people i'm working in utopian studies as well what's the point of utopias what's the point of looking at um constructs in in fiction mm. um and i think that that's the point it it is it's it's aspiring towards this change and it's actually using uh this fiction that is created as provocation as you said and um that's that's vital and i think that ties back into um bigger murky's wider politics of of women's empowerment through education it's not just um let's spread the word to people who already know about this it's let's spread the word to people who actually need to hear this mm. um and it, and i think that that dovetails quite nicely with her lived politics of of empowerment of anti-colonialism of um cross cultural cross religious and cross class feminism yeah sure um is there anything in particular that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention or is there anything anything you want to like plug or mention before i sort of wrap up at the end uh i'm i have an edited book coming out but that has nothing to do with sultana stream so i don't know whether that would be relevant to plug <laughs> yeah you can plug it that's right what's it about um uh so two of my colleagues uh, and I have worked on uh, an edited collection on the politics of culture. Uh, we it, It's a collected um, set of essays that looks at various aspects of popular culture and, and fiction and literature uh, to talk about the impact that has on everyday politics. I've written a chapter on uh, queer utopias through the graphic novel The Young Avengers, uh, and it's uh, going to be coming out hopefully later this year through Cambridge Scholars Publishing. And I really hope people keep an eye out on it. Um, it, it would be really great to be able to support um, early careers researchers like myself and my colleagues. Okay, that sounds cool. Okay, well, um, thank you very much for coming on to talk to me. It's been fun. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so that's the end of my conversation with Iptisam. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a a rating or review, uh, would be very much appreciated. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, um, please check out patreon.com slash utopian horizons and have a look at all the episodes on there that you can get access to by backing me. Um, I will be back um, relatively soon, I think, with uh, another episode um, about a book that I've just finished reading. As always, I'm keeping it vague because um, I don't like uh saying i'm gonna do something until the interview is recorded and i 100 know it's in the bag and happening but um yeah uh theoretically speaking i should be recording that in the next week or so hopefully so yeah it won't be too long until that's ready to come out 
Uh, if you have any feedback or questions or anything else that you would like to send me, you can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at utopianhorizons. And there's a Facebook page at facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. There's also a, a Discord you can join if you want to chat to me there and you can find the link for it uh, in the pinned tweet on my Twitter feed, uh, Twitter page. So... Yeah, that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening and I'll be back soon. Bye-bye.